electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Nike sinking after reporting earnings moments ago. The company conference call kicking off right now. We'll bring you all the headlines and get Wall Street's first take on the stock's reaction. Plus, another hit to the face for Mark Zuckerberg, the two co-founders of Instagram, jumping shift as the insider clash spell more trouble for Facebook's flailing stock. We've got all the details, but first, we start off with the gladiator style battle being nice. fought by the consumer. Yep, the consumer. Inside the arena, it looks like a fight to the death. The rates on the rise is a 10-year yield at highest level since May, ahead of tomorrow's Fed meeting, plus gas prices. They're soaring. And finally, fears of higher costs as tariffs loom. All things that should be taking down the consumer. But through it all, retail stocks continue to rally to all-time highs. Consumer confidence is soaring. So the question tonight, are you not entertained? Just kidding. <laughs> the question is, can the consumer continue to stand strong? Is the strength a good sign for the stocks? Gladiator guy, what do you say? I'd like to think. Double G. You know, I, I, it's funny. <laughs> of so. course you'd like to think. I'd like to think. I'd like to think. I'd like to think. Stop. Stop. Okay. Anyway. Did you ever see, did you see the movie Gladiator? Yes, I did. Oh, you sound, Honestly, well, what does that mean? You sounded particularly excited. Because I actually remember that I saw it. I'm very proud of myself. It was one of Russell Maybe Fantastic work. Yeah. Okay. Are you not entertained? <laughs> Did you hear that? that was yes. yeah. He's a fan of Fast Money, by the way. Russell, if I'm you're sure. watching, good to see you. <laughs> uh, the consumer, of course the consumer's strong, but to me, and, and I'm sure I'll take heat from this, but consumer confidence to me is just an overlay of the S&P 500. What does it mean? It means when the market goes higher, people feel like they have more money, whether true or not. If people feel richer, people will spend. Don't confuse the U.S. consumer's ability to spend with their want to spend. That's something we've said a long time. I think the consumers are levered, and we can have that debate. Consumer debt now is north of 50% of GDP. That's unhealthy. With that said, as long as the market continues to grind higher, I think people will continue to spend money. However, and we talked about this last week quickly, consumer stocks are actually, some of these retailers are rolling over. We played the game last week. Would you rather, and it was, would you rather be in consumer staples or consumer retailers or banks? And I said banks. And if you look very quietly, these names that have had huge runs are starting to sell off. But Gladiator Guy, the reason we're talking about Gladiator the consumer guy. tonight is because the, the consumer sector is outperformed. If you're measuring by the XRT, mm-hmm. it's outperformed the S&P. So it's not just a coincident indicator, which I agree, by the way. Consumer confidence is coincident. It's not leading. But it's outperformed the S&P by 16% since last Black Friday, and it's up over 30%. So it was left for dead, as in all these major retailers were dead. That was more of a structural issue. It wasn't a description of how healthy the consumer is. And, yes, the consumer is extremely healthy. And I think wage gains, job, you know, the the, the amount of jobs and the available jobs, and we see this in every regional survey. So, yes, the consumer has a lot of room to run, but 
again, I think we've had a very big run here, and I think we're going to take the same trend into Black Friday. Then I think the comps get really tough for a lot of these. Well, companies. and and the point is, is that this goes to the heart of the whole argument with the economy, with the economy and the market, is that the consumer has been boosted by a good a good economy, tax cuts, stimulus, all these things, which has led to the strong stock market. Like Guy said, you have to look at ask now, 2019, is that going to continue or is it going to come in? Right now, the stock market's telling you, you know what, that's going to continue. And you look at some of the more defensive industries like the utilities and the staples, they have sold off tremendously over the last couple of days while the consumer has done well. Where does low unemployment rate uh, fit in? I mean, because theoretically, the consumer the consumer is in better shape than the consumer has been in in a very long time. And finally, we're seeing the start of wage increases, albeit yes. small, but we are seeing I don't even think it's that small. I don't think okay. the, the wage increase is that small. You have the $15 minimum wage, so that's pressuring companies. That's just sorting a cycle of, of, of uh, inflation. And I think you have other higher-paying jobs where they can't fill them. They'd like to be able to fill them, and they can't find the talent. So that's good for the consumer. I think the consumer, we'll see. We haven't quite seen yet any back-to-school numbers. I bet those will be pretty good. And then, as Tim said, we're starting to get into that Black Friday and the holiday season. I think that'll be good. Also, I am sort of concerned, though, about trade has all been rhetoric until now, and then it'll start to be actual trade-ish, actual tariffs, right. which we haven't seen yet. Actual so, price increases, exactly. theoretically. Right. So, Either to be borne by the consumer or to or, be borne by the retailer. Right, exactly. Right. So, for example, you know, GM today, which has been so frustrating, which I own, down on those BMW numbers, but also down on trade issues. And I think we may start to see, if we don't resolve trade quickly, and I, I used to think we would get it resolved much more quickly than I do now. I'm glad you brought up the mm-hmm. BMW numbers, because I thought that was interesting. They're citing trade, trade tensions and tariffs as distorting demand, the demand picture. And you would think that for a product like a BMW, it's theoretically a, a it caters to somebody. The ultimate tanning machine guy back right. in the day. Remember that? The convertible. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, drove, it's, I it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a product that's a, sort of right. a, a luxury product, <laughs> right. right? A higher end consumer who could theoretically weather price increases more, uh, an additional tariff on the cost. And yet they're seeing an impact. Well, w- one of the things that we're seeing, and again, if you look at these regional Fed surveys, Richmond Fed today, by the way, best number since 1993, along with consumer confidence, best confidence since September 2000. But autos, houses, durables, appliances, not so much. And, and they've really been left out of this rally. Um, so what do you buy here? I mean, I actually think that the home improvement names are still extraordinary. As much as people connect them to rising interest rates in the housing sector, think about aging baby boomers, aging millennials. Think about the jobs. Think about the, the, the aging housing stock. Think about the lack of supply out there. People are spending on their houses Home Depot has taken technology in terms of their professional services, in terms of how they manage their productivity to a T. That deserves a premium valuation. I stay there. Shouldn't we think about the retailers as the ones who can absorb the costs of, of additional tariffs? Of or, the, of they the price price the ones that or their consumer or, or will allow it. them. Exactly. Right. Yes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a difference between paying $2,000 more for a BMW or $2 more for a Rayon shirt. There's a Why difference you point there. a guy when you did that? I didn't. Oh, did I mean well, to point? Did I didn't see a shirt? It's just a natural reaction. Did you just point a guy? That was I don't know. Did. It's don't subconscious. I'm sorry. It's a great shirt you've got, Guy. I didn't mean anything by that. Rand my point is, things. My point is, we have multiple things right now that are working for the consumer. It's working for the stock market. You have this potential for a melt-up. But in the next couple months, you've got to worry about high gas prices. You've got to worry about tariffs. You've got to worry about increasing prices. For now, we're okay. But looking into 2019, it looks a little shaky. Contractors are now putting escalation clauses in contracts with 
people like us that maybe want to do a home improvement job four or five months from now. They're saying, you know what, this is what it's going to cost. If you did it today, six months from now, that quartz or that backsplash you want to put in might be 10 or 15 percent more expensive based on these tariffs. Sounds like I saw it on the personal. CNBC website, <laughs> yeah. so it's got to be true. So with that said, yeah, I agree with Home Depot, but if stocks that have worked, and we've said this for a while, American Express got past all the problems of three or four years ago, all-time high. MasterCard and Visa as well. Both of the latter, maybe valuation get a little expensive, but I think American Express at 14 and a half, 15 times is interesting. Yeah, Phil LeBeau is a very fine reporter. He, he did this piece the other day about the in- impact of tariffs on things like uh, auto retailers. And so he, he held up like a, a windshield brush. And I mm. think it was $19 or something like that now. But with tariffs, they said this retailer said it would go up to $25. Wow, the windshield brush. The windshield it, was a, brush. It, was a, it was a car wash brush. That's, yeah, that's I mean, that's a something big. I haven't used in a long time. I'm gonna go I, I don't want to look at your car. I mean, <laughs> but a 25 percent increase. I mean, like you, if you sort of replicate that, and I'm not saying it's going to be 25 percent per se, but you sort of extrapolate that across the economy with different goods, mm-hmm. and you think. Maybe somebody's going to think twice before picking up that new yes, car wash right. brush or whatever. You know, fill you in the blanks. The windows, you had louvers on the back of your Camaro, right, guys? So you didn't need that brush, right? You know, louver. That's the first time you we used that. Today, you know, which by the way, quickly, is high tonight on the desk. It makes the <laughs> comments from Wilbur Ross exa- so ridiculous. He, he said the one cent can. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, it's you, it's a wide swath of items. You won't feel it. Yeah, you won't feel it across a wide swath. Well, you won't feel it if you're Wilbur Ross. And you won't feel it if you're Wilbur Ross. But you will feel it without question. Just because it's not one thing, it's a series of things. That's why I thought his comments about a week and a half, two weeks ago, were so ridiculous. All right. Well, we mentioned the rise in rates, but despite the move, the banks, they've been sitting on the sidelines pretty much. So what is wrong with the struggling sector? Which names could be due for a breakout? Let's go off the charts with Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Hey, Todd. Hey, Melissa. Uh, first, before we jump into the financials, let's take a look at the, the bond market as measured by the TLT. Obviously, financials are very responsive to where uh, interest rates are going. And this chart, to me, is so interesting. This is TLT back to 2016. And you can see this thing is just sitting on the edge of a cliff. I think just hanging on. I mean, it's got five, possibly five tests of this support level at 116. Personally, I'm short. I do think we break lower, and that obviously spells for higher interest rates, which should help the Fed. One thing that I would put um, to you guys is why is this bond market moving lower? Is it that we have a hawkish Fed, and, and in fact, the economy is very solid, or is it China selling bonds? My good friend, uh, Ryan Dietrich, who's a fellow technician, put out a great chart, uh, Chinese holdings of U.S. Treasuries at a six-month low. So are they selling, and is that is that a good thing? And I think that kind of fundamental stuff that I just put out there spells into this chart in XLF, the financial ETF. Guy and I were we're talking this uh, about a month ago. Our level was just about 28 and a half right here in XLF. We broke out, but look what it's doing. It's coming back to retest. I think this whole market is just in such kind of limbo. You know, is it risk on? Is it risk off? It's a very range bound market. And I think it just all depends on what those bonds are doing, as I said in the last bit. So I say let's respect the trend for now. The two charts that I brought along within XLF show a very good chart pattern. So I say, come on, XLF, let's hold 28. Let's get a bid here. So the first one I thought that looked pretty good was uh, City. So we'll start up on the weekly chart in Citigroup. And you're going to see that we have a nice five-wave Elliott trend. I love surfing those Elliott waves. And they'll give you three main phases of a, of a trend. So there's number one, that's accumulation. Here's number, the middle one, which is widespread participation. And finally, you should get a third phase of this trend, which is distribution. So longer term, I think City looks good. This is the weekly. Let's get down to the daily. And the daily, what you'll see is a very nice kind of inverse little uh, little head and shoulders here. Oops, that's going to be another one. We'll, we'll kind of... Just zero in on that one, but I just want to 
Oh, there we go. Thanks, guys. So, so what you're seeing here is you've got a, a left shoulder, you've got a head, you've got a right shoulder. Here's that same kind of equivalent 28 level in XLF. Citigroup looks like it's holding. Support is in place. So if you do want to get some long exposure in City, I like that provided we're above that 72, 73 in Citigroup. And finally, the Mac Daddy financial out there, JP Morgan, um, really, really strong looking chart up there. Uh, just kind of with the kind of a, like a continuation cup and handle here. You get a base, a little right handle here. If you can get that launch up through the 120 mark, JP looks good. So, you know, if, if those banks can push up, bonds press down, I think uh, those are your two guys to take you to new highs. You know, Todd, when we're thinking about the banks, we always think about rates, and we're seeing the 10-year yield rise to, what, 3.1%. Yep. We're also seeing the two-year rise as well. I'm just wondering, when you're taking a look at these charts, is there any correlation? Is there really any correlation with the I, yield curve I, or the I, spread? I, I really think so. I think that's what the, why okay. this whole market is just so indecisive. I mean, it's true. That TLT, which tracks 20-plus-year uh, treasuries, those yields are moving up. What's moving up, to your point, is the shorter end, and that's flattening that yield curve, and that's preceded the last two major tops, 2000, 2009. It's, it's not an inverted yield curve yet, but this whole market, I think, is on hold because we just don't know what to make of it. It's, uh, it's very indecisive, so I think that flattening yield curve is really the key for why we're not breaking higher. All right, Todd, thanks. Todd Gordon, tradinganalysis.com. You're long. I'm long banks. Uh, look, I think the flattening of curve, banks borrow short and they lend long, but they also borrow short and they lend short. And, and you know, we're getting near a 3% two-year. If anything, I think that's pressure on equity markets because I think you're actually going to suck some yield you know, chasers out of it. But bottom line is financials have totally underperformed when rates have been moving higher. Okay, yield curve's been kind of flat. And, and that is troubling because I, I think they are the most levered to this economy that's got so much confidence around it. I stay long banks. I agree. I mean, I, I like Tim. I'm frustrated they haven't traded better. There is this perception that banks are a giant two-year, ten-year bet, yeah. which they're not, no. though. I agree no. with Tim. They are not. They are not making that giant bet. However, I do think if rates generally move up, it's better. I'm hanging on J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America. I like them all. Citibank, I think, has the most upside. Whether or not they are, whether or not they should be, right, dependent on the 210 spread. That's the way they trade. I yeah. mean, that's just the well, right. reality. I mean, it's out something different. Right, the exactly. Value right. Yeah, so, I mean, everybody's looking at the net interest margin, and the 210 spread is the proxy for that. So as, as long as enough people believe that, then that's how the banks are going to trade. That being said, I actually think something like a J.P. Morgan trades very well relative to the other banks, and actually today even. So for me, if I'm going to play the banks, I want to be in J.P. Morgan. Real quick, Wolf Research initiated banks today. I think Citibank, $91 price target outperformed. That's obviously a huge move from 73 in terms of valuation. That's probably the cheapest one out there. All right, coming up, check out shares of Nike. The stock is falling after returning support. The conference call is underway. We will tell you what the CEO said about the controversial quarter. Plus, a big change is in the works for the Coinbase platform. They will be here to make the exclusive announcement. And later, General Electric slide continues. The stock hitting its lowest level in nearly a decade. But if history is any indication, the bottom might be in. Huh. We'll explain. Huh. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. More trouble for Facebook as the Instagram's co-founders are calling it quits. Julia Borson's in Los Angeles with more on what this might mean for Facebook. Hi, Julia. 
Well, Melissa Instagram co-founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger are leaving the company. They were CEO and CTO, respectively, this after selling their app to Facebook in 2012 for a billion dollars. And they've had quite a successful run over the past six years, growing it over to a billion monthly users. The co-founders writing in a post, quote, we're planning on taking some time off to explore our curiosity and creativity again. Facebook shares bouncing back after dipping this morning on news of their departure, the departure which comes at a time when Instagram is considered increasingly important for Facebook's future. It's adding users when Facebook's core service has stagnated and it has more room to grow ad revenue. It also comes at a time when there's growing concern about executive departures. CEO and founder of WhatsApp, Jan Koum, who sat on Facebook's board, announced his departure in April. And last month, Facebook's head of partnerships, Dan Rose, announced he will be leaving after 12 years. This fuels some concerns about internal strife at Facebook under the cloud of scrutiny from Capitol Hill for election manipulation on the platform. It also raises questions about whether there was tension over a push to more closely integrate Instagram into parent Facebook. As for who will replace Kevin Systrom as Instagram CEO, there are a number of reports now that Instagram's VP of product, Adam Mosseri, will get that top job. SunTrust Robinson Humphrey says that Instagram is left with stable footing and that the co-founder's departure ushers in an era for closer integration with Facebook, while JP Morgan says that we can expect Facebook shares to come under meaningful pressure from these departures. Melissa, back over to you. Julie, I think this raises the broader question um, about whether the Instagram experience uh, is remaining the Instagram experience as it becomes more closely integrated with Facebook, um, particularly at a time when Facebook is really relying on increased monetization on Instagram in order to offset declining metrics on the core platform. Well, I do think that they well, they understand that Instagram is valuable because it's different than Facebook. It is a visual medium. It's all about photos. The captions and everything else about Instagram are really secondary to the photos and the videos on that platform. And so I would expect Facebook to be sensitive to that value in the difference between Facebook and Instagram. I just think it'll be interesting to see if they really encourage people to link more between the two platforms. One thing that we're seeing Instagram really invest in is the potential around retail. It's natural place um, because it is so visual it is like flipping through a glossy magazine to be able to sell people different products within that format so i think that's one area where instagram sees a unique ability to grow and it's sort of less natural on facebook all right julia thanks julia borston from los angeles for us i'm going to go to the uh, number one grammar here on the desk and that would be guy Adami. oh yeah I love the gram. I'm on instagram by the way my name if in case any of the folks you <laughs> should you should start what was your latest yeah. post yeah, that's an excellent question for you. Last Thanksgiving? Maybe. I, you know, but you're supposed to. You know, it's funny. I learned from my kids. You're not supposed to post a lot on the gram. It's like once or twice a week or so. Not like every five can, minutes like on Twitter. Can mm -hmm. I so pull you learn this things. back to Facebook? Yeah, please. You may. So, you know, I, I, listen, I get, I get uh, ridiculed, your, your Facebook basher ever since last quarter. And it's probably true. I've probably been a little too hard. Tim's been right on this one. I'll say this. Stock hasn't really bounced since last quarter. Had that huge sell-off, went up to 180, and is right to back now lower than we were after they reported. Not a good sign. I thought it would do a back and fill back to those levels we saw, 155, when Mr. Zuckerberg was testifying. I'll stand by that. But at some point, valuation matters. And today, on the other side, I actually thought it traded pretty well, given this news. It had every opportunity to sell off a couple percent and didn't do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it opened down maybe two, maybe yeah, a little 2%. more, two plus percent, and rallied back to you know, down a third of a percent. I thought it traded pretty well. Also, I think this part, these founders leaving, is really a sideshow to what are the main issues that face 
Facebook. And I think we'll get a look. October 31st, I think, is their next earnings release to see how, how are those expenses. It was that margin compression that we saw last time that so freaked the street out. I come back to valuation again, and I want to own this business at this price. See, you know, I, I, I agree with that historically, but I just think the way people are viewing the company is very different. And, and so I, I've talked about this before, and, and the way I see it is they're going to have the companies that sell your data and our data brokers like Facebook, Twitter, Google, and those companies that use your data to improve your experience and then sell you things, which is, is very different to me. And I think getting consumer data right and privacy right is going to be critical for big tech. And I think that's on display so this week. So worry about Facebook, don't worry about Google. Look, I, I've been don't very about clear Amazon. about Facebook. I think Facebook has existential issues, but more importantly, how do I value a company that can't value the costs of securing their most important asset? And I stay with that view. All right. Yeah. Well, despite Facebook's recent underperformance, one options trader is betting on a big rebound ahead for the social giant. Mike Coe's in San Francisco to break it down. What'd you see, Mike? Yeah, so this morning at the at the outset, we did see slightly above average put volume. But by the end of the day, kind of to Guy and Karen's point, the basically the sentiment changed. And one of the larger trades we saw was a purchase of the October 170 calls. Over 3,000 of those traded for about $1.16. So the buyer of those is making a bullish bet that the stock is going to recover above that 170 strike price by how much they paid, which would be up about 4% in just over three weeks. Looking out to earnings, which is going to be on the 31st, we're also seeing a slightly lower than uh, normal implied move. So it seems like options traders are not overly concerned about today's announcements. All right. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. For more on Facebook and the fallout, head over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. It's the General Electric Blender. And it continues to blend up investors' portfolios. But we'll tell you the three signs to know when it's clear to buy. Plus, a major change is coming to the Coinbase platform. And we'll tell you what it is when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a Bitcoin alert. Coinbase introducing a new listing policy that could bring in a whole influx of new coins and assets to the platform. So instead of the five coins currently offered right now, Coinbase users could soon be able to buy and sell hundreds or even thousands. For more on how this could shake up the global crypto market, let's bring in Dan Romero, the vice president of Coinbase. Dan, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What exactly has prompted this and, and what, is, what will we see differently on the platform? So when we talk to customers, their number one request is add more assets to the platform. 
And if you look at where we are today, we have five assets on the platform, and there are thousands of cryptocurrencies we don't support. So what we're launching today, and I'm really delighted to talk about, is listing.coinbase.com, and a new process where we will enable Coinbase to list as many assets that are compliant with local law. So let's take um, the case specifically within the United States. I mean, we've spoken to you guys many, many times. We've spoken to Asif about why there are so few uh, coins listed on the platform right now. And, and a big part of the reason is because of the regulatory sort of uncertainty surrounding whether or not a particular coin is a security or a commodity. Has there been any more uh, developments? I mean, as far as I know, there hasn't been too many developments in terms of determining which coins out there fall into that category. So will we actually see things change on the U.S. platform? I think you'll see changes globally. We're, we're a global company with global customers, and I think we are going to take a region-by-region region approach with every asset, with ultimately trying to allow customers, wherever they are, to have access to the maximum number of assets possible. Okay, so, so I think about in the U.S., uh -huh. we are very much engaged with regulators and are going to make sure any asset we list in the U.S. is compliant with local law. Okay, so does that mean, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm trying to ask for the Coinbase user in the United States, and I'm sure that many people in our audience fall into that category where they are Coinbase users within the United States. Are you able under the current regulatory framework that exists or maybe doesn't exist um, right now to list more assets? We, we feel confident in our ability to list more assets in the U.S., but it's going to be a case-by-case case basis. Where do you think you'll see the most additional listings happen around the world? And, and that, that really speaks to the regulatory framework that exists in different countries and how it, it differs from what it is here in the U.S.? Yeah, so I, I think we're going to list assets globally, and, and that's first and foremost, any asset we list, we want to have available to every customer. And I think you'll see certain assets listed in Europe, other assets rest of the world, but ultimately every asset we list on the platform, we also want to make available for customers in the U.S., assuming it's compliant with local law. Hey, Dan, it's BK. So I'm curious, you guys have seen a lot of competition globally from Binance, from some of the Korean exchanges, a lot of the Japanese exchanges. How much of this shift from a U.S.-centric view to a global view is driven by that competition? I, I think it's critical. I think ultimately crypto is a global phenomenon. You have software developers and entrepreneurs around the world building products on top of crypto. And it's, it's unlocking a bunch of use cases, especially in emerging markets. So I think we need to shift as a company to a more global perspective. And I think there are some really high quality global exchanges that I think we, you're going to see in the coming months as we add more assets, we are going to be more competitive with. From the business side of things, Stan, is there also a desire to increase volumes? I mean, I would imagine with the, the turn in, in, let's just use as an example, Bitcoin prices from 20K to 6K plus, that volumes have gone down. Is there a pressure within the business or a desire within the business to just increase volumes overall, and therefore you do that by increasing the number of assets you list? I, I think ultimately it's responding to what customers want. So adding more assets is directly something customers are telling us. And so ultimately, by adding more assets, we're going to increase trust and make the platform easy to use for our customers. And if you do that, I think ultimately volumes will take care of themselves. Okay. Dan, we're going to leave it there. Thanks a lot for joining us and making this announcement on Fast Money. We appreciate it. Dan Romero from Coinbase. What do you think, Beeks? 
Well, I think it's a big move for Coinbase. I mean, I think it highlights the fact that we're dealing with a global asset that is subject to local laws. And that's really challenging, specifically if you're a U.S. company, competing against companies like Binance, which is now based in Malta, basically came out of nowhere to become one of the largest exchanges out there. So I think there's a great move by Coinbase in terms of impact on price of Bitcoin. Probably not much may have an impact on other coins. Still ahead, check out shares of Nike getting kicked down in the after-hour session. Will the CEO address the controversial Colin Kaepernick ad on the earnings call? We will find out. Plus, General Electric sliding more than 10% since it got kicked out of the Dow three months ago. So how do you know if it's safe to buy this falling stock? Guy here has some tips. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been an epic fall from grace for General Electric. The stock hitting its lowest level in nearly a decade, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's get to Dom Chu in the newsroom for all the details. Hey, Dom. Well, Melissa, just when you thought the bottom was in for General Electric stock, markets take another shot at punishing the industrial giant. It happened again in today's trading with the stock now around a nine-year low. Now, the next levels that some traders and investors are watching to the downside for GE come via that financial crisis era, kind of where we're in right now. Some were hoping for a bit of a bounce after GE got kicked out of the Dow Anecdotally, recent stocks that have been kicked out of the Dow have caught at least a little bit of a bid in the following months. We are now just around three months removed from GE being booted from the Dow. So GE has lost around 12 percent of its value or thereabouts. It's around $13 billion in market value. Now, you compare that to recent deletions from the index, like, say, AT&T, back after the close of business on March 18, 2015. In the three months after that, its shares rallied by around 4%. Now, that round of index changes before that happened back on September 19, 2013, when Alcoa, Hewlett-Packard, and Bank of America all got the boot. They, remember, were replaced by Nike, Visa, and Goldman Sachs. Now, in the three months after getting the boot there, Alcoa shares rallied by around 18%. Hewlett-Packard gained around 32%, and B of A turned in a respectable 8% return. Now, it's safe to say that the pressure is on CEO John Flannery to show some investors that the longer-term plans for creating value at GE will be successful. But until then, Melissa, traders will be wrestling with whether or not that beaten-up stock in GE has become a compelling enough value trade for the time being. Back over to you. All right. Thanks, Dom. Dom Chu in the newsroom. Tim, you're still in GE. Yeah, small position gets smaller every day. You know, <laughs> bottom line, what's happened here? Really, the news, I think, over the last couple of weeks is coming from GE Power, which is one of these businesses that I think they people thought was relatively stable, and their H-frame infrastructure is something that's now being challenged. I believe the energy assets are undervalued. For me, it is some of the parts, um, but I wouldn't bet the farm. All right, so if you're looking to get in on a name like GE, how do you know when it's safe to jump in? Mm. Mm-hmm. Guy here has got some key things to look for before you catch a falling Oh, that's knife. nice. Oh, I do? Oh, I do. I'm kidding. It's a joke. I'm going to walk over to the smart board and we're going to discuss oh, this. Because that. uh. that's what we call it now, the smart board. Tim has made very cogent points about some of the parts, but let's talk about Finding the bottom. Remember that movie, Finding Nemo? They did find that little clownfish. We're going to try to find the bottom in GE. And how do we do that? Well, this is what I'm looking for. Number one, new 52-week low on heavy volume. What did we see today? Actually, Dom Chu just pointed out, we saw a nine-year low on ridiculously heavy volume. Traded about 134 million shares. Typically trade somewhere between 55 and 60 million shares. That's big volume. Number one, that's good. Number two. Management addressing failures. 
Mr. Flannery, John Flannery, the new CEO, he has absolutely addressed the failures of the last decade or so. I think he's been pretty outspoken about what has happened and what they're doing to rectify them. So that's in order. Company remains in viable industries, and Tim just spoke to that. Listen, they're not making eight tracks, the things that I use, VCRs. They're not making Kodak film. They're actually in viable industries, healthcare being one of them, energy being one of them. So they still are in industries that if they figure it out, they should do very well. Now, let's take a quick look at the chart. This has clearly been a problem. I mean, you see the S&P, which is this little blue line. I mean, that's been a rocket ship up for the last 10 years or so. GE was following along, but then it started to take missteps, and we've had this divergence. At a certain point, GE will figure this out. And given the three things I just outlined, and especially that big volume on a 52-week low, not only 52-week low, but a nine-year low day, maybe we're closer than we think, and maybe the stock is worth taking a look at in the earnings this October. Melissa. BK yes. has a question. I do have a Hi, question BK. for you, Gay. So how do you, you, you mentioned this high volume day, 52 week low. How do you determine how high volume is high enough? I right? would have, that's a great question. I would, instead of today, it was two and a half times normal volume ish. I would rather be closer to four and a half or five times normal volume. I think when you see those types of numbers on new lows, that's very compelling. But I'll give them a break. This is the largest volume day we've seen in quite some time. So to me, at least, in, poor, in part, you have that high volume day. Maybe not in total, but at least in part. It's a start for about putting in a bottom. Okay, I got a question for you. Hi, Karen. Dean. All right. Is it about clownfish? No, not about clownfish. Okay, okay at $10, mm -hmm. I know that used to be an inconceivable number for GE, but we're only three days away at this point. At $10, is that a line beyond which you cannot touch it because... Yeah, can't own I think that's a great question. I don't remember what the low, what the 07 um, financial crisis low was. It probably was right around there, maybe even single digits. But I mean, $10 is probably going to be, obviously, for a lot of people, um, a line in the sand. I'm not certain that's the case, but that would obviously be concerning. I don't know if we're going to see it. Um, I think, you know, we're in the process of maybe putting in a bottom. I know Tim hopes that, and maybe given today's volume, we're closer than I think. All right, thanks for that, Guy. We've got some breaking news now on SurveyMonkey. It is pricing uh, its IPO. Leslie Pickers got the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. That's right. Sources tell me that SurveyMonkey has decided to price its IPO at about $12 per share, which is above the range it had been marketing to investors at about $9 to $11 per share. That was based on higher-than-expected demand from investors. Uh, I'm told that those pricing details will be uh, out later this evening, but the company and its advisors have decided on $12 per share above the range the company had been marketing. Back over to you. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker in the newsroom, BK. Well, it's interesting in the context of IPOs because we had, even a year ago, some of these going below the range, right, and then selling off afterwards. So I think in general, I would take this as a positive for the market that you're seeing demand for these new issues. It's, it's also, as we said, we, these kind of second-tier high beta tech names have actually done phenomenally well. And I would put that, this is, again, it's, it's service technology, People know this name. They've been in business a long time. They're finally going public, and people have been rewarding these companies. All right, still ahead. Nike falling about 4% in the after-hour session, near the lows of the session. We'll tell you what is driving the move and get instant reaction from Wall Street. Plus, crypto goes to Capitol Hill. The fate of the ICO market hangs in the crosshairs as Wall Street and Washington debate Bitcoin regulation. We'll tell you what it all means for the space when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Crypto goes to Congress. Top executives from Wall Street, VC, and crypto firms met uh, on Capitol Hill today to discuss the future of cryptocurrencies. Our Seema Modi joins us now with more on the story. Hey, Seema. Melissa, that's right. Cryptocurrencies and ICOs were all the buzz today in Washington. Congressman Warren Davidson from Ohio hosted a major roundtable with roughly 50 Wall Street representatives on Capitol Hill. Topics included cryptocurrency regulation, token issuance, and a digital currency bill that Davidson plans to present to Congress this fall. Attendees included big-name venture capitalists, financial firms, and crypto exchanges, names like Andreessen Horowitz, Union Square Investors, crypto finance company Circle, the Nasdaq, Fidelity. The key focus for today's meeting included finding better ways to protect consumers from crypto fraud and regulate cryptocurrencies more effectively. Participants expressed frustration at what some felt was a lack of urgency. Some worried that if the U.S. does not regulate soon, innovation could flock to other countries. In fact, some executives raised questions over whether the SEC was truly the right government agency to be regulating crypto or whether it should be the CFTC or possibly an entirely new government organization dedicated to dealing with digital currencies. Crypto execs also complain that ICOs and instances of fraud have given the broader crypto space a bad name and that folks in the room want to be compliant if given the chance. The meeting comes amid rising concerns from lawmakers over the woes of investing in crypto, including manipulation and funding and terrorism. Two executives in attendance today told me they hope to have their input factored in as Davidson drafts this bill, the first of its kind that could have wider implications for investing in cryptocurrencies. Melissa. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi from the New York Stock Exchange. We're joined now by Carla Caravo, who currently serves as Senior Regulatory Counsel at Circle and participated in today's Crypto Roundtable in Washington. Uh, Carla, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having um, me. From Circle's specific point of view, what were you trying to get across to, to this panel of lawmakers today? Absolutely. Uh, I think first, we're just thrilled to be part of Representative Davidson's roundtable and thank his, him, his colleagues, and his staff for bringing this issue to the forefront. Uh, we think that legislation is the right way to move and the way to move this industry in the U.S. And that's one of the reasons we created or we're co-founders of the trade association that's the first of its kind called the Blockchain Association. Because we do think that Congress needs to step in if we want the U.S. to be competitive here. So that would be the first thing that we would advocate for. Um, some of the central themes of this roundtable was just that there's not clarity, and that was the reason for the, defin the, the title of the roundtable, which was legislating certainty uh, in the cryptocurrency space. From Circle's point of view, though, I mean, is your hope that you'll be able to be listed on a, a U.S. trading platform? Um, I mean, what, what, is, what is your sort of um, bone in this fight? Sure. So we uh, we operate a number of platforms, and one of those is a, is a cryptocurrency exchange. And we uh, have trouble figuring out what if something is or is not a security. So I think right now that's our first challenge is to get some clarity on that because once you figure out if something is or is not a security, then you can figure out all the different rules and regulations that apply. For us. Um, you know, we the, and the way that I think the entire group at the roundtable today views most of these assets is they're not securities and should not be regulated with the same type of regulation that the SEC brings to the table. Um, and so I, I think that was what you heard as a constant theme. Um, in in terms of in terms of the the laws that could be made, Carl. I mean, are you getting the sense? And I asked this 
from the standpoint of, you know, we, we watched the Facebook hearings and a lot of people were appalled by the lack of knowledge of just how that platform worked. So within this sort of roundtable, did you get the sense that lawmakers really understood this? I mean, I would think that this is a much more complicated and nuanced space as opposed to understanding how the Facebook business model works. And, and yet we saw a, a very sort of perfunctory knowledge of how that worked. I feel like the representatives that attended today had a good understanding of how blockchain technology works and certainly how cryptocurrencies are traded. Um, that may or may not be true for the rest of the congressional members. It's something that we need to continue to educate on. Is that what concerns you? The lack of knowledge or the, uh, that, that this is a complicated space, it's hard to explain, it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea to understand these types of things. I think that's right. I think the lack of knowledge and then also just right now how at least on the securities um, side, that the regulation doesn't fit. Even if we wanted to claim that all of these were securities, it's hard to comply because blockchain technology does not work the way that the regulations have been crafted. All right, Carla, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank Carla you for Caravo having me. Of Circle. Um, BK, all of this is being done as we speak. Yes. What's your greatest concern? What do you. My greatest concern is that the U.S. loses comp competitiveness. I mean, I've spent the last year flying around the world, and I can just tell you the U.S. is already behind. I don't think they're fatally behind, but we are already behind. There's much more adoption going on in Asia. What I think is interesting, what you're seeing here, and what we saw from the Coinbase announcement, is that they are both struggling with the clarity around the U.S. rules. Coinbase has made the decision, you know what? We have to compete globally. We're going globally. I wouldn't be surprised to see Poloniex, which is the exchange that Circle loans, uh, do a similar thing. All right. Still ahead, Nike sinking after hours. The CEO just addressed the controversial Colin Kaepernick ad on the company conference call moments ago. We'll bring you the comments. Plus, let's get a check on our Kramer cam as we head to break tonight. Jim is on the West Coast talking to Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. You can catch the full interview at the top of the hour. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in a rainy Times Square. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nike down by about 4% in the after-hour session despite an earnings beat. Let's get to Sarah Eisen at the New York Stock Exchange with the details behind the quarter. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Melissa. And Mark Parker, CEO and chairman, just addressed for the first time how the Colin Kaepernick ad actually impacted Nike's business. Listen to what he said. We feel actually very uh, good and very proud of the work that we're doing uh, with Just Do It, just the uh, introducing Just Do It to a new generation of uh, consumers, mated actually quite strongly with consumers, uh, obviously here in North America, but also uh, around the world. It's really transcended the North America uh, market to uh, touch, I think, people around the world. He also said that there has been record engagement with the brand as a result of the campaign and said that it led to increases in traffic, both socially and commercially. So that was the strongest hint yet that some of the investors' beliefs that this was a bullish thing for Nike has been confirmed. As for the stock reaction, down a little more than 4%. Why? Well, best explanation is it's just been such a strong winner, best performer in the Dow so far this year after running up more than 35%. There was nothing blowout in here. It was a steady growth quarter for Nike, hitting on all the metrics, 10% revenue growth, double digits in China, growing gross margins, et cetera. One more newsy tidbit I can bring you from the earnings call. The CFO, Andy Campion, did say that they maintained their current outlook, and that's because the dollar is going to shift to a 
headwind starting this quarter from a tailwind. The strength of the U.S. dollar that we have been seeing and covering all over CNBC starting to hurt as a result of trade and geopolitical tensions. Otherwise, the implication is Nike would have raised its guidance because of the momentum that it is seeing across the business. We reached out to some analysts for quick commentary. First reaction, I'll share that with you. Matt Powell from the NPD Group points out that the wholesale business is growing faster than retail sales. Stacey Widlitz, a contributor on retail here, says Nike's story is very much intact. Product looks as good as candy. Jan Niffen, though, says, I wouldn't be telling people to buy here. He also says the Kaepernick ad hurt the business for the mass market. No indication of that. And Sam Poser of Susquehanna says Nike is strengthening across categories, geographies, and distribution channels. So overall, if you're a bull on Nike, there's nothing fundamentally to alter that except for the fact, Melissa, that this has just run up so strongly and a lot of it has been priced in, including what Parker said about Kaepernick and the impact. All right, Sarah, thanks. Sarah Eisen joining us from thanks. the New York Stock Exchange with a lowdown on Nike. Um, we're practically at highs here on Nike, so was it sell the news? I mean, what, what's behind that? Absolutely decline? sell the news. Look, 50 to 85, basically trading at 29 times 2020 versus a three-year average around 22 times. But the good news is you've got an accelerating North America, you've got these international focus, and you've got DTC that's working. I, I think Sarah nailed all the points. Yeah, And I think well, when you're trading at this kind of multiple, um, you've got to beat by a little more than a little. Right. To keep that multiple. Mm -hmm. But they're only back to where they were three weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a, it's a multiple. It's, a, it's, an, it's how expensive they are to, historically to themselves and how quickly they've traded up to $85. You want to take a silver lining? I thought the quarter was okay. Inventories are up 0.3% year over year against 10% sales growth, which indicates to me margins which were good this quarter will be good again next quarter. And I think you buy this sell-off. And according to Mark Parker's commentary in the conference call, it made it seem like the ad actually was working, even though we're not getting numbers yet. Right. It didn't seem to be a big concern for them. So, I mean, and if you look through these numbers, there was really nothing. I mean, margins may be slightly lower, but if you're a Nike bull, this sell-off is an opportunity for you. Is it, an, is it, so it's worth the buy on down, down 4%? I, I think down eight, down, what is it, 4% or so, yeah. 81? I absolutely think it's a buy. Yeah, what do you think? Still too expensive? Uh, for me, too expensive. I would wait maybe one more day, also a little shakeout, but um, I mean, there's a lot to like. Uh, look, I, I, I was long the stock into the numbers, I stayed long. All right, we got some breaking news here on the Survey Monkey IPO. Let's get back to Leslie Picker at headquarters. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, we told you a little bit ago that Survey Monkey was pricing above the range at $12 per share. We have additional details to share now that the company has upsized the number of shares it plans to offer to investors to 15 million shares. So $12 a share, 15 million shares, that's about $180 million offering size. The company had initially been planning on offering about 13.5 million shares at a 9 to $11 range. Now that's uh, been massively upsized, largely thanks to investor demand. All of that is based on uh, what several sources have told me in conversations. Uh, we're expecting an announcement out shortly. Back over to you. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, Guy Dami, just quickly, does this uh, indicate that search for beta within this market that's already at all-time highs? Look at the... 100%. Look at that. Oh, your Crazy. Favorite, really? your I'm a huge Survey Monkey fan. I use it every day, the Survey Monkey. 100. Yeah. 100. <laughs> Up next, final trade. Final trade time, Tim. I would be buy buying weakness in Intel. Get on that. Karen? Yes. If we trade with anyone, I think it might just be Mexico. <laughs> I think that's where you go. EWW. Nice. Speakers. Well, regardless of any trade, the one thing that looks like it's going higher is oil. XOP is the way I would play it. 
Gladiator guy. I got my Survey Monkey application and that downloaded on my Apple device. I'm so excited about it. So good for them on Check the app. Did you go to the app store and buy it I, off the shelf? I did while it was yeah. raining. And Cleveland Cliffs, that sucker's just breaking out. All right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5. More Fast Mad Money starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.